News Flash for Saturday, 5 May 2018. Welcome. Your news from the Malaysian election. Electoral watchdog groups in Malaysia said the voter list for next week's general election had major flaws, including the existence of a 121-year-old voter, raising the spectre of possible fraud. About 15 million Malaysians are registered to vote in next Wednesday's election, pitting Prime Minister Najib Razak's Barisan National Coalition, which has ruled for six decades against a resurgent opposition led by former leader Mahathir Mohamad. A joint study of the voters' rolls by electoral reform groups Bursi and Engage found more than 500,000 cases of voters registered with the same address, while more than two million were found to have no address. The groups highlighted ten major irregularities they said affected hundreds of thousands of voters nationwide. They said in a statement, "A defective electoral roll will bring into question the legitimacy of the whole election." Despite the huge number of dubious voters discovered, we believe these preliminary findings are just the tip of the iceberg. The study found some cases in which dead voters were re-registered, and one voter whose birth year was listed as 1897. In one example, the study listed numerous cases of multiple people registered at the same address in the parliamentary constituency of Bagandatu, held by Deputy Prime Minister Ahmad Zahid Hamidi. Bursi official Chan Su Tong Chong told a news conference, "Our conclusion is that there are symptoms of a deliberate plan, action to massively move voters to impact elections in marginal constituencies." The groups did not say who they believed was behind the plan. The Malaysian Election Commission did not respond to a request for comment. Barisan National said in an email response that Bursi's findings should not be taken as objective facts. As it was a functioning arm of Malaysia's opposition, a spokesperson said, "As such, Bursi has every reason to undermine confidence in the vote, so that afterwards it can complain that the election wasn't fair. This is a smear on Malaysia and the integrity of Malaysia's independent electoral commission." The opposition and other critics have said that recently withdrawn, redrawn electoral boundaries favour the ruling coalition, which has been accused of gerrymandering. The government and election commission have rejected that assertion, saying that changes were made independently and without political interference. Campaigning kicked off last Saturday for an election that is widely expected to be the toughest yet for Barisan National. Najib is grappling with a multi-billion-dollar scandal at State Fund One Malaysia Development Berhad, or One MDB, and popular anger over rising living costs. Which have given momentum to the challenge from his 92-year-old mentor turned foe Mahathir. Najib denies wrongdoing. The coalition is expected to retain power, but a diminished majority in the 222-seat parliament could leave Najib open to an internal leadership challenge. Bursi and Engage said in their statement that the effect of the cheating could only be overcome by an overwhelming voter turnout. Meanwhile. Opposition politician Tian Chua has failed to initiate legal proceedings against the Election Commission to reverse the rejection of his nomination to contest in next week's election. High Court Judge Justice Nordin Hassan made the ruling after allowing the preliminary preliminary objections raised by the Attorney General's Chambers yesterday. <coughs> Justice Nordin dismissed Mr. Chua's suit on grounds that the court has no jurisdiction on the validity of returning officers. Decision to reject the nomination, he said. Mr. Chua should file his suit by way of an election petition. Name as the respondents in this suit are the returning officer Anwar Muhammad Zain and the EC. In his originating summons filed on Monday, Mr. Chua has sought to reverse the rejection of his nomination last Saturday. He also sought a declaration that he is entitled to contest and be nominated for the Batu parliamentary seat. Mr. Chua was disqualified from defending his seat, returning officer Mr. Anwar, who said that the two thousand ringgit fine imposed on a politician in March this year for insulting a police officer made him ineligible to contest. Malaysian law disqualifies an MP from public office if he is sentenced to imprisonment for a term of not less than one year, and or is fined not less than two thousand ringgit. 
Mr. Chua, whose real name is Chua Tianjiang, is vice president of Party Kidilan Rakyat, or PKR, and has held the Batu seat for two terms from 2008. His party has appointed 22-year-old law student P. Prabhakaran as its candidate for the hotly contested ward, which is also contested by the ruling Barisan National and Party Islam Sir Malaysia. Meanwhile, a PKR candidate who failed to register for con to contest for a state seat in Negeri Sembilan on April 28, as he did not have an election commission or EC pass to enter the nomination hall, said his query received a static response from the commission. Dr. Shreeram Sinansami said in a statement yesterday that instead of replying to his questions on why he was barred and if there were regulations on wearing an EC pass to be allowed entry into the hall, the commission in its response showed him the fact that the Rantau seat had been won uncontested. The winner was incumbent Negeri Sembilan Mentari Bursa Muhammad Hassan. Dr. Streram said he is planning to sue the EC and the returning officer over the matter. In other Asian news, the United States formally complained to China after Chinese nationals pointed lasers at U.S. military aircrafts near Djibouti in a number of incidents in recent weeks, the Pentagon said yet on Thursday. The U.S. military has been grappling with lasers being pointed at aircraft for decades. However, the incident highlights the concern the United States has about a Chinese military base just miles from a critical U.S. base in Djibouti. Pentagon spokeswoman Dana White told reporters, They are very serious incidents. We have formally demarched the Chinese government and we've requested the Chinese investigate these incidents. White said the Pentagon was confident that the lasers had been pointed by Chinese nationals and in the past few weeks, fewer than 10 incidents had taken place. The intent was unclear. A US official, speaking on the condition of anonymity, said that one incident last month, two pilots in a C-130 suffered minor eye injuries. The official said that in a few instances, military-grade lasers from the Chinese base had been pointed at aircraft. Djibouti is strategically located at the southern entrance to the Red Sea on the route to the Suez Canal. Djibouti hosts a U.S. military base that is home to about 4,000 personnel, including special operations forces, and is a launch pad for operations in Yemen and Somalia. This year, the U.S. military puts countering China, along with Russia, at the center of a new national defense strategy. The U.S. has also raised concerns with China about its latest militarization of the South China Sea, and there will be near-term and long-term consequences, the White House said on Thursday. U.S. news network CNBC reported on Wednesday that China had installed anti-ship cruise missiles and surface-to-air missile systems on three outposts in the South China Sea. It cited sources with direct knowledge of U.S. intelligence. Asked about the report, White House spokesman Sarah Sanders told a regular news briefing, We're well aware of China's militarization of the South China Sea. We've raised concerns directly with the Chinese about this, and there will be near-term and long-term consequences. Sanders did not say what the consequences might be. A U.S. official, speaking on the condition of anonymity, said U.S. intelligence had seen some signs that China had moved some weapon systems to spread the islands in the past month or so, but offered no details. CNBC quoted unnamed sources as saying that according to U.S. intelligence assessments, the missiles were moved to Fiery Cross Reef, Subi Reef, and Mischief Reef in the Spratly Islands within the past month. They would be the first Chinese missile deployments in the Spratlys, where several Asian countries, including Vietnam and Taiwan, have rival claims. China's defense ministry did not respond to a request for comment. Its foreign ministry said China has irrefutable sovereignty over the Spratlys and that necessary defensive deployments were for national security needs and not aimed at any country. Ministry spokeswoman Hua Chunying said, those who do not intend to be aggressive have no need to be worried or scared. CNBC said the YJ-12B anti-cruise ship missiles, sorry, anti-ship cruise missiles allows China to strike vessels within 295 nautical miles. It said the HQ-9B long-range surface-to-air missiles could target aircraft, drones, and cruise missiles within 160 nautical miles. 
Eric Sayers, a former consultant to the commander of the U.S. Pacific Command, called the missile deployment a major escalation and said one immediate U.S. response could be to resign Beijing's invitation to this year's RIMPAC multilateral naval exercises beginning in Hawaii in July. Sayers said, Sayers, currently an adjunct fellow at Washington Center for Strategic and International Studies, said, When China sees that it can get away with these types of actions with little cost, as they did all through 2015 and 2016, it only makes it more likely they will keep pressing. China sees its participation in the exercise as a sign of its acceptance among the world's maritime powers, but Beijing should not be allowed to militarize this open maritime domain and still be honoured as a welcome member of the maritime community. Last month, U.S. Admiral Philip Davidson, nominated to head U.S. Pacific Command, said China could use its forward operating bases in the South China Sea to challenge the U.S. regional presence and would easily overwhelm the military forces of any other South China Sea claimants. China's southern city of Shenzhen is using facial recognition technology to identify traffic offenders and levy fines, with 40 sets of surveillance devices installed mainly at busy intersections. The electronics police will pay special attention to people in certain industries, careers for example, as well as people who have had the driver's licenses revoked, according to the city's traffic police. Four types of violations, running a red light, failing to observe traffic signals, using non-motorized vehicles on roads, and driving without a license will be closely monitored. A total, of, a total of 58 cases related to jaywalking and 67 cases involving non-motorized vehicles on roads were detected on, on Tuesday, the first day of operations. The violators will be notified via text message and fined depending on the severity of the violation. The move is Shenzhen's latest push to make use of high technology in municipal governance. Earlier, the city had launched programs using facial recognition technology to regulate vehicles. With the rapid development of facial recognition technology, Shenzhen has achieved a breakthrough in expanding traffic regulation from only vehicles to pedestrians, said Xu Wei, head of Shenzhen's traffic police. The city plans to expand the surveillance network by adding at least 200 sets of facial recognition devices by the end of this year, he said. Home to a number of technology companies such as Huawei, Tencent and DJI, Shenzhen has been taking efforts to integrate advanced technology into its traffic system. In April last year, the traffic police installed a set of surveillance cameras at a key intersection, using facial recognition technology to identify jaywalkers. Photos were compared with those in a police database. The pictures and personal information of the traffic violators were then displayed on large LED screens at the intersection. Most people appear to embrace the move, saying it could reduce irregularities and promote social progress. Lin Wei, a 56-year-old Shenzhen resident, said, The measure is a constraint to people who have little consciousness of traffic rules. In the long term, fewer people will violate the rules and our society will become better. But some have voiced privacy concerns over displaying, displaying offenders' personal information on the public screen. Another Shenzhen resident said, Displaying photos and information of offenders quickly, publicly, sorry, could lead to a problem with privacy. The authorities need to attach high importance to that. Other Chinese cities are also using facial recognition technology. Last month, a suspect was arrested after being detected in a crowd of 60,000 people attending a music concert in Nanchang, Jiangxi province. China said on Thursday it has removed import duties on as many as 28 medicines, including all cancer drugs, from May 1st as a move which would help India to export these pharmaceuticals to its neighbour, the Times of India reported. Chinese ambassador to India Luo Zhaohui said in a tweet, according to the report, China has exempted import tariffs for 28 drugs, including all cancer drugs, from May 1st. Good news for farm India's pharmaceutical industry and medicine exports to China. I believe this will help reduce trade imbalance between China and India in the future. The development came days after Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Chinese President Xi Jinping agreed to open a new chapter in their relationship after an informal summit last week. 
Ties have been strained after a dispute over a stretch of the high-altitude Himalayan border rekindled fears of war. India has also repeatedly asked for greater market access to China for its goods and services, including IT, pharmaceuticals and agriculture, to reduce the bilateral trade deficit. The deficit stood at 51 billion US dollars in 2016 to 17. Mr. Law said that China would further improve business environment by halving time required to open a business. He added, China's door to the outside world will open wider. Indian businesses are welcome. China has also agreed to set up an industry park in India to increase investments and bridge the trade deficits, the Times of India said. One of New Zealand's top naval officers is accused of hiding a camera in the toilet of the country's embassy in Washington in a bid to obtain intimate footage of people using the bathroom, court documents showed yesterday. Commodore Alfred Keating was a senior defense attached at the Washington embassy when a COVID recording device was found in a unisex lavatory in July last year, Judge Grant Powell said. He said in a written judgment released Friday yesterday, it had been purposely mounted inside a heating duct in a bathroom at a height and direction that captured recordings from people who arrived and used the toilet. The hidden camera was discovered when it fell to the floor, and a thick layer of dust on its mounting indicated it had been in place for many months. While Keating had diplomatic immunity in the United States, police in New Zealand exec executed a search warrant on his home seeking evidence in the case. No indecent images were discovered, but police found Keating had installed driver software for the camera. They also matched DNA to samples found on the memory card in the camera. Keating was charged with the attempting to make an intimate visual recording in March and subsequently resigned from the military. The High Court rejected a name suppression bid by Keating, which argued he and his family would face extreme hardship if his identity was revealed. Before the posting to Washington, where he was New Zealand's most senior military officer, Keating was Assistant Chief of Navy in Wellington. He has not pleaded he has pleaded not guilty, and the case is ongoing. A series of powerful superstorms that tore through India this week have killed 143 people, as officials warned yesterday the death toll could rise with more extreme weather expected. The India Meteorological Department has warned there are likely to be more storms over a wider area today. A deadly dust storm claimed 121 lives in Uttar Pradesh, Rajasthan, Uttarakhand and Punjab, while an electric storm, in which lightning struck an estimated 40,000 times, left 21 people dead in the country's south. Thousands of people in Uttar Pradesh and Rajasthan had their homes destroyed by the freak storm, which was packing winds of up to 130 kilometres per hour. A total of 76 people were killed in Uttar Pradesh, India's most populous province, the State Disaster Management Department said, with Agra District one of the worst-hit areas, with at least 43 people killed. 40-year-old Agra resident, Muna Lao Jha, told AFP, We couldn't sleep and were worried if the storm hits again. We took precautions and secured everything, but nothing can stand up to nature's fury. 24 people were killed in a single village in Keragar, near Agra, locally, media reported. 39 deaths were reported in the neighbouring desert state of Rajasthan, which was hit by winds of over 100 kilometres per hour, destroying houses, tearing up electricity networks and uprooting trees. Storms and lightning strikes killed thousands of people every year in India, but this was one of the most deadliest series of storms in recent decades. The head of the Telangana State Disaster Management Department, R.V. Chandravadan, said volatile weather will also continue in the southern region. Seven people were killed on Thursday in lightning strikes and strong winds, which knocked down walls and tore up trees in the state. Chandravadan told AFP, We have similar weather warnings for the next two days. Another 14 people were killed in Andhra Pradesh, which was hit by more than 41,000 lightning strikes late Tuesday. A jade mine slag heap collapsed in northern Myanmar yesterday, killing at least 14 people, rescue officials said, the latest in a series of disasters to hit the largely unregulated gem industry. Myanmar is a major gemstone producer, and the civilian government led by Aung San Suu Kyi pledged to tighten controls after a landslide in a jade mine 
killed more than 100 people in 2015 in Kachin State, the site of yesterday's collapse. Friday's accident happened in the early morning in the village of Waika. When workers were scavenging through heaps of mining debris for discarded jade, Miner Minnaung, 30, said, I barely escaped. The soil bug collapsed and killed people. Many jade mines are owned by companies linked to leaders of the previous military governments, ethnic armies, and Chinese firms. Workers, many of them migrants from elsewhere in Myanmar, toil long hours in dangerous conditions and for little pay. Chit Kong, administrator of Waika, where most of its 50,000 population work in mines, said, to safeguard people's lives and to reduce the risk of landslides, companies should follow the mining law while digging. Environmental advocacy group Global Witness puts the value of jade production in Myanmar at around 31 billion US dollars in 2014. Experts say the majority of stones are smuggled to China. Fighting between government forces and an ethnic armed group in Kachin has displaced more than 5,000 people since early April, the United Nations says. Taiwanese police have arrested more than 300 suspected gang members ahead of local elections in a crackdown triggered by concerns over the increasing involvement of organized crime in the island's tense politics. Four of the 310 arrested are reportedly members of a small pro-China party founded by a former gang leader that regularly organizes protests in support of Beijing, which claims Taiwan as part of its territory. Police said in a statement on Thursday they had confiscated illegal weapons and drugs following raids on 762 locations across the island in the sweep launch on April 30th. Local elections scheduled for November are seen as an important barometer of popular support for the ruling independence-leaning Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, or the China-friendly Kuomintang. Former gang leader turned politician Chang An-Yu known as White Wolf, spent 10 years in a U.S. jail for drug trafficking and lived in exile for 17 years in China before returning to Taiwan in 2013. He was a leader of the Bamboo Union, one of Taiwan's largest criminal gangs, before founding the China Unification Promotion Party. Members of Chang's party have been accused of attacking Taiwanese independent supporters and Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong when he visited Taipei in January 2017. They also allegedly attacked several student protesters last September at a music concert that was cut short following to scuffles between pro-independence and pro-China protesters. Police also said a former senior Bamboo Union member had encouraged other gang members to take part in the China Unification Promotion Party's activities. Authorities are in also investigating whether there was gang involvement in a protest last month over planned cuts to military veterans' pensions. More than a dozen reporters and over 80 policemen were injured during the protest that descended into chaos with some throwing smoke bombs and attempting to pull down the gates to the parliament's compound with ropes and chains. Beijing has turned hostile towards Taiwan after President Tsai Ing-wen of the DPP took office in 2016, as she has refused to accept that the island is part of one China. China has stepped up pressure by convincing several of Taiwan's diplomatic allies to switch recognition to Beijing and intensifying military patrols close to the island. More than two tons of crystal methamphetamine were destroyed yesterday as Indonesia stepped up its drug crackdown in one of the biggest such operations of recent years. The Southeast Asian country has some of the world's toughest anti-narcotics laws and imposes the death penalty for trafficking. The crystal meth had been seized from foreign registered ships in two separate operations in Indonesian waters near Singapore earlier this year. Four Taiwanese and four Chinese crew members were arrested. Vice President Joseph Kala inspected the drugs wearing protective gloves and a mask before tossing some bags of the crystal meth into an incinerator in the capital, Jakarta. He said, We respect the police for seizing this 2.6 tons of crystal meth, but there are still many out there, so the danger is still real. Indonesia, the world's most populous Muslim-majority country, has made combating narcotics a top priority and resumed the execution of traffickers 
in 2015 after an unofficial hiatus. 18 convicted drug smugglers, including 15 foreigners, have been sent to the firing squad under President Joko Widodo, sparking a diplomatic backlash. Last month, eight Taiwanese drug smugglers were sentenced to death. Mr Joko has repeatedly defended his tough stance, claiming Indonesia faces a drugs emergency and must act to protect the next generation. There were about 6 million drug users in Indonesia in 2016, out of a total population of 260 million, according to the National Narcotics Agency. Moving to other world news, with the country in an uproar over the brutal rape and death of a 20-month-old toddler, Chile's President Sebastián Piñera on Thursday backed plans to lift the statute of limitations on sex crimes against minors. The move came just days after 20-month-old Anba was taken to, to a hospital in the central Los Andes region by her aunt and legal guardian, who claimed she had fallen off a bed. But medics who examined her quickly realized the toddler had been raped, with the pediatrician telling Chile's La Tercera Daily he had never seen such levels of abuse in his 18 years of experience. Despite undergoing immediate surgery, she did not survive, in a case of brutality which has badly shaken conservative Chile, sparking calls for a return of the death penalty. The alleged perpetrator is believed to be the aunt's partner, who has been arrested on suspicion of rape and murder. As the toddler was being laid to rest at an anguish ceremony in central Chile, Pinera signed off on a draft law to stop to drop the statute of limitations in cases of sexual abuse against minors. The move went further than expected, following reports he would set a 30-year time limit for bringing legal action after such crimes. Under the current legislation, there is a 5- or 10-year statute of limitations on sexual abuses involving children, which varies according to the nature of the crime. He said, Our children who have been sexually abused have the right to a defence in order to obtain justice and prevent the passing of time, becoming a real accessory in favour of impunity, he said. The draft law will be brought before Chile's lower house of Congress with extreme urgency, Pinera said. Among those present as he signed the document was Dr. James Hamilton, who was abused by Chilean pedophile priest Fernando Caradima in the 1980s and 90s. Although Karadima was forced into retirement in 2011 after being found by the Holy See to have been a serial abuser of minors, the victims were unable to pursue a criminal case against him in Chile because the statute of limitations had expired. Hamilton told reporters of the draft law visibly moved. It's a miracle, a gift for our country. They won't regret it. This will bring social peace. Hamilton recently travelled to the Vatican along with two other victims, Juan Carlos Cruz and Jose Andres Murillo, for several days of talks with Pope Francis about the extent of abuse within the church in Chile. Last year, there were 22,540 complaints about sexual abuse, an average of three per hour, with children and teenagers the main victims, figures from the state prosecutor's office show. The U.S. state of Hawaii's Kilaui volcano erupted on Thursday, causing lava to spew out of ground fissures in residential areas and prompting authorities to mandate thousands of people to evacuate. U.S. Geological Survey authorities of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory Unit were both on the ground and headed into the air to assess the eruption, which followed dozens of earthquakes in recent days and began around 4.45pm local time, according to the agency. Local news footage showed streams of lava snaking through a forest, while the Hawaii County Civil Defense Agency reported steam and lava emissions from a crack in Leilani subdivision in the area of Mohala Street following the blast, mandating all residents to leave the affected area. At 10.30am, a 5.0 magnitude earthquake south of the Pu'u volcano cone triggered rock falls and potential collapse into a crater on the volcano, according to USGS. An advisory from the agency said, A short-lived plume of ash produced by this event lofted skyward and is continuing to dissipate as it drifts southwest from Pu'u. It warned that anyone downwind may experience a dusting of ash. The giant pink-hued plume was seen rising above the zone, with authorities warning of subsequent lava inundation, fire, smoke and additional earthquakes. 
hazards also included potentially lethal concentrations of sulfur dioxide gas in the zone, as well as methane blasts that could propel large rocks and debris in adjacent areas. Governor David Eger had activated the Archipelago State's National Guard troops and told residents to pay heed to warnings from the Civil Defence Agency. He wrote on Twitter, Please be alert and prepare now to keep your family safe. A local community centre was opened to residents impacted by the threat, Hawaii's Emergency Statement Agent Management Agency said. USGS had raised the volcano alerts in the area from a watch to a warning, reporting that new ground cracks were discovered in the late afternoon. The agency wrote, White hot vapour and blue fume emanated from an area of cracking in the eastern part of the subdivision. It said spatters began just before 5pm. USGS emphasised that the early stages of fissure eruptions are dynamic, and additional vents and new lava outbreaks may occur. At this time, it is not possible to say where new vents could happen, it said. The Leilani Estates area is part of the Big Island's eastern rift zone, in which the Hawaii Volcano Observatory had identified magma movement and warned residents that seismic activities and eruptions could take place without notice. Hawaii County's Mayor Harry Kim said, All board areas bordering East Rift Zone at high risk for eruption. NASA is poised to launch its first lander to Mars since 2012, an unmanned spacecraft called InSight that aims to listen for quakes and unravel the mystery of how rocky planets like Earth form. It is scheduled to launch today at 7.05 a.m. Eastern Time from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and if all goes as planned, it should land on the Red Planet on November 26. Since the Earth and Mars likely formed by similar processes 4.5 billion years ago, the U.S. Space Agency hopes the lander, officially known as Interior Exploration, using seismic investigations, geodesy, and heat transport, or InSight, will shed light on what made them so different. Bruce Bennert, InSight Principal Investigator at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, said, How we get from a ball of featureless rock into a planet that may or may not support life is a key question in planetary science. We'd like to be able to understand what's happened. On Earth, these processes have been obscured over billions of years by earthquakes and the movements of molten rock in the mantle, he said. But Mars, the fourth planet from the Sun and Earth's smaller and less geologically active neighbour, may yield more clues. InSight aims to rest in an isolated spot and detect Mars quakes, which NASA describes as like a flashbulb that illuminates the structure of the planet's interior. The lander will gather information using three instruments, including a seismometer called the Seismic Experiment for Interior Structure, made by the French Space Agency. Bennett called the seismometer the heart of the mission. After landing, the spacecraft's robotic arm will gently pull it out and set it on the ground, according to video images released by NASA. Scientists expect to pick up as many as 100 quakes during the mission, which should last at least 26 Earth months, or one Martian year. Most of the quakes are expected to be less than 6.0 on the Richter scale. Studying how seismic waves pass through the crust, mantle, and core of Mars can help scientists learn more about what the layers are made of and how deep they are. The second key instrument is a first-of-its-kind on Mars self-hammering probe that will monitor the flow of heat in the planet's subsurface. Called the Heat Flow and Physical Properties Package, it was made by the German Space Agency with the participation of the Polish Space Agency. The probe should go 15 times deeper than any previous Mars mission, to a depth of 10 to 16 feet, or 3 to 5 meters, NASA. A third instrument will help scientists on Earth keep the precise track of the lander's location as Mars rotates. The US spent 813.8 million US dollars on the spacecraft and rocket launch, while investments on the instruments from France and Germany amount to 180 million US dollars according to NASA. A pair of mini-spacecrafts that are also launching on the rocket cost NASA $18.5 million. Known as Mars Cube one or MARCO, 
the briefcase-sized satellites will fly on their own path to Mars behind InSight and test tiny new deep space communications equipment, NASA said. InSight was initially supposed to launch in 2016, but a problem with the seismometer was discovered in late 2015. One component cracked slightly during tests to replicate the large temperature extremes on Mars, which dipped to minus 120 degrees Celsius. Engineers decided it could not be patched, and NASA granted more time for them to promptly fix the problem by shifting the launch window to 2018. Launch weather officer Christina Williams told reporters the weather forecast for Saturday morning is expected to be foggy, but that there were no other constraints to lift off. If Saturday's launch is delayed for any other reason, another opportunity opens tomorrow. NASA's pair of Viking landers in the late 1970s had seismometers, but only one of them worked. It was much less sensitive because it, it was bolted on top of the spacecraft. In contrast, inside seismometer will be picked up with a robotic arm and placed directly on the ground. InSight aims to be the first NASA instrument to land on Mars since the Curiosity rover, which arrived in 2012 and is still working. British Prime Minister Theresa May's Conservative Party avoided a wipeout in London local elections and eked out gains in Brexit-supporting regions elsewhere, early results yesterday showed, although her Labour opponents did gain ground in the capital. The elections are viewed as a gauge of public support for May, as she faces a possible revolt in Parliament over her strategy for leaving the EU. Partial results showed May was likely to avoid the kind of widespread losses that would dramatically weaken her authority over Conservative lawmakers ahead of key tests of her plans to pull out of the EU customs union. May's party held on to control of Wandsworth Council, a low-tax Conservative stronghold since the time of former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. The council had been one of the socialist-led Labour Party's more ambitious targets in Thursday's vote. Votes will decide more than 4,400 council seats, determining the makeup of 150 local government authorities who are responsible for the day-to-day -day provision of public services. They do not affect seats in Parliament, where May has only a slim working majority thanks to a deal with a smaller party. The Conservatives also held the symbolic council of Westminster in the heart of London's political district, indicating that the final scale of losses in the capital would come in at the lower end of the predicted range. Despite retaining overall control, the Conservatives lost individual seats in Westminster and Wandsworth. Ruling parties typically suffer losses at local elections and polls ahead of the vote predicted a bad night in London for the Conservatives after eight years in power. May is also negotiating an exit from the EU that 60% of the capital rejected at the 2016 Brexit referendum. Results elsewhere in London's 32 boroughs showed the forecast swing to Labour in the capital had materialised, although not strongly enough to inflict the heavy losses that would pose a serious headache for May. Outside London, the Conservatives regained control of councils in the pro-Brexit regions of Peterborough and Basildon, largely at the expense of the anti-EU UK Independence Party, or UKIP. UKIP has suffered leadership issues and struggled for a new purpose since achieving its primary political aim at the 2016 Brexit referendum, when Britain decided to leave the EU. But May's party lost control of the highly prized council in the Trafford area of the northern city of Manchester, its only foothold in an important Labour-dominated economic region where the Conservatives have spent years trying to win support. The overall tally, due around 7pm GMT, will offer the most complete snapshot of public opinion since an election last year in which the Conservatives suffered unexpected losses, leaving May weakened and a party arguing openly about Brexit. May will remain under pressure from rival Conservative factions, those who want to keep close ties with the EU by staying in the customs union and others who say anything short of a clean break is a betrayal of the Brexit referendum results. That issue is expected to come to a head with at least one vote on it in Parliament in next month. The Swedish panel that awards the Nobel Prize in Literature will not name a laureate this year, it said yesterday, 
not because of a shortage of deserving writers, but because of the infighting and public outrage that have engulfed the group over a sex abuse scandal. The Swedish Academy, almost half of whose members have resigned in protest at how it has handled allegations against the husband of a member, said it would award two prizes in 2019. It last postponed the prize, given in recent years to Kazuo Ishiguro and Bob Dylan, seven decades ago. It said in a statement, The present decision was arrived at in the view of the current diminished academy and the reduced public confidence in the academy. Work on the selection of a laureate is at an advanced stage and will continue as usual in the months ahead, but the academy, the academy needs time to regain its full complement engage a larger number of active members, and regain confidence in its work before the next Literature Prize winner is declared. The Academy is involved only in the Literature Award, so other Nobel Prizes are unaffected. Held up as a paragon of gender equality, Sweden has been roiled by a number of Me Too scandals in the theatre, film, music, and most damagingly the Swedish Academy, the Financial Times said yesterday. The body has been plunged in crisis since November in the wake of the global Me Too campaign when Swedish newspaper of reference Dagens Nyheter published the testimonies of 18 women claiming to have been raped, sexually assaulted or harassed by Jean-Claude Arnold, a French photographer influential on the Swedish culture scene and who is married to Academy member Katarina Frostenson. Recent media reports in Sweden alleged that Mr. Arnold also groped the Crown Princess Victoria. The Financial Times reported, he denies all the allegations. The announcement that there will be no 2018 prize is the latest in a series of, blow to, of blows to the Academy that, occurring in the glare of the Me Too movement, have drawn worldwide attention. The institution, founded in 1786, has on seven previous occasions chosen to reserve the prize in 1915, 1919, 1925, 1926, 1927, 1936, and 1949. On five of those occasions, the prize was delayed then awarded at the same time as the following year's prize, the Academy said in a statement. Though the prizes should be awarded annually, they can be postponed or skipped when a situation in a prize-awarding institution arises that is so serious that a prize decision will not be perceived as credible. The Noble Foundation, which governs all of the prizes, said in a statement posted online yesterday morning. The crisis in the Swedish Academy has adversely affected the Nobel Prize. Their decision underscores the seriousness of the situation and will help safeguard the long-term reputation of the Nobel Prize. Mr. Arnold and Ms. Frostenson co-own Forum, a cultural centre in Stockholm that received funding from the Academy. Some events were said to have occurred at Academy-owned properties in Stockholm and Paris, and at least one woman's complaints to the Academy about Mr. Arnold more year than 20 years ago were rebuffed. The crisis escalated when the Academy dismissed another member, Sarah Danius, as its permanent secretary, the group's chief official, the first woman to hold that post, though she remained part of the panel. She had severed the group's ties with Mr. Arnold and Forum and commissioned an investigation of the Academy from a law firm. Her demotion prompted mass protests by critics who said that a woman had suffered for the misdeeds of a man and that Miss Danius had been punished for trying to introduce openness and accountability to a group that preferred to close ranks. Some of the Academy's 18 members resigned over Miss Frostenton's continued membership and several more quit over the treatment of Miss Danius. That has left the group with 10 active members, too few under its rules, to elect new members. But Academy appointments are for life, and the organization's rules do not provide for resignations. It considers those who have quit to remain members, albeit inactive, so they cannot be replaced. That has co prompted calls for King Carl Sixteen Gustav, officially the Academy's patron, but normally not an active participant, to step in. This story is still developing. After repealing a decades-long ban on cinemas only last year, Saudi Arabia has now launched an ambitious drive to become a culture and entertainment hub as part of sweeping modernization plans. American film star Katie Holmes and British actor-director 
Idris Elba rubbed shoulders with Saudi officials as the Conservative Kingdom on Thursday night kicked off an initiative to invest 130 billion riyals in culture and leisure by 2020. The goal is to create a true cultural industry with theatres, cinemas and training centres, said Mr. Ahmad Al-Mazid, who leads culture policy for Saudi Arabia. Key projects include 16 entertainment complexes, an aquatic centre and three other huge leisure hubs, all part of a bid to ensure three Saudi cities make it into the global top 100 for quality of life. The project, dubbed Quality of Life Programme 2020, is in part designed to encourage wealthy young citizens to spend more of their leisure time in the kingdom, where more than half of the population is below the age of 25. Mr. Ahmad Khatim, head of the oil-rich state's entertainment policy, said, It will contribute to the satisfaction of Saudis and incentivize them to invest in the country and to stay. The government will pump 50.9 billion riyals into this cultural revolution while courting private investors and foreign partners for the rest of the investment. British actor Elba, who made his name as a gangster in the gritty American police series The Wire, told AFP at the event, Saudi Arabia gave me an opportunity to make my film here. It made sense on an economical model. I would definitely be here. Why not? Added the Londoner, who has in more recent years turned his hand to directing and has a Twitter following of more than two and a half million. The investment program feeds into a drive by powerful Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to modernize his homeland, both in terms of liberalizing Saudi society and reducing the economy's overwhelming dependence on oil. The initiative aims to create 300,000 new jobs and represents a key pillar of the nation's Vision 2030 reforms. And lastly, ending off with Singapore news. Piling and construction company Zep Piling has been fined $290,000 for a fatal incident in 2016 that resulted in the death of a worker, Mr. Arumugam Ilango. On June 7, 2016, the company's director instructed site supervisor Tay Tong Chuan to perform a functional test of a ball piling machine at a machinery storage yard at 6 Kranji Ling for the first time. Mr. Tay did not receive any particular instructions on safety matters, the Ministry of Manpower, or MOM, said in a statement yesterday. On June 9, 2016, the functional test was conducted for a third time and involved Mr. Arumugam and other workers. Mr. Tay instructed crawler crane operator Tai Guangdin to shift a boring bucket that was in front of the ball piling machine to another location, which was next to a stack of ball pile casings. After rigging the buckets with the crane's chain slings, Mr. Arumugam moved to a tight space between the ball piling machine and the stack of casings, which were about 1.4 meters apart. As the crane, operated by Mr. Tai, was shifting the buckets to place it next to the stacked casings, the buckets knocked against the casings, causing some of them, some of them to topple. Mr. Arumugam was pinned against the track of the ball piling machine. Each of the fallen casings weighed about 1.76 tons. Mr. Arumugam was pronounced dead at the scene due to multiple injuries. In its investigations, MOM found that the company had failed to perform several tasks. It had failed to conduct an adequate risk assessment before testing the ball power machine at the premises. It also did not establish an appropriate safe work procedure in relation to the functional test of the ball power machine nor did it brief all employees on the risks involved or the necessary safety measures before they took on respective roles. The company did not apply for a permit to work as required for lifting operations in accordance to the Code of Practice on safe lifting operations in the workplaces, which would have ensured that the appropriate safety measures were in place before work commenced. The company failed to establish and implement a lifting plan, this would have required the firm to mark the zone of operation for the lift to consider the physical factors such as obstructions existing at the time of the lift and to establish an effective means of communication amongst the various workers involved. Finally, the company failed to ensure proper housekeeping arrangements at the premises, such as putting in place effective supporting structures to ensure the casings are stabilised to, pre to prevent their collapse. The risk of a load coming into contact with the casings in the tight and congested premises was high and it was foreseeable that there could be accidental dislodgement, MOM said. 
MOM's Director of Occupational Safety and Health Inspectorate, Sebastian Tan, said the congested and disorganized premises were hazardous to the workers. Mr. Tan said, The company's numerous and glaring oversights in ensuring their workers' safety resulted in a loss of life. A heavy fine was sought to remind employers not to blatantly disregard the safety of their workers. Yet another ride-hailing app will enter the Singapore market soon, making it the third such company to move into the point-to-point -point transportation industry since the departure of Uber. Local startup Philo Technologies, which was founded late last year, said it intends to launch its private hire car booking services within the next two weeks. It is up against local firm Ride and India's Jagnu, which both debuted earlier in the week, and incumbent Grab, which acquired Uber's Southeast Asia operations two months ago. Founder Jason Tan, 41, who is from the shipping and logistics industry, said yesterday that fares will be cheaper than those for taxis and comparable to other private hire car services. Fares will also fluctuate based on demand and supply, he added. To attract drivers, Philo will collect a 12% commission, lower than Grab's 20%, which will be capped at $400 a month, said Mr. Tan. Drivers are free to use his platform and will not be bound by any exclusivity agreements. He is currently recruiting 300 licensed private hire car drivers to drive for his app through social media and word of mouth and aims to have 2,000 drivers in time for the launch. The company is based at Vision Exchange in Jurong East and has a startup capital of $50,000. Mr. Tan said this money comes from his own pockets and investors and he has plans to raise more funds. His rivals currently have deeper pockets. Jagnu has raised 16 million US dollars, Ride has 1.5 million US dollars and Grab 4.1 billion US dollars, according to tech website Crunchbase. Competition in Singapore's ride-hailing sector looked set to get more intense, with firms such as Singapore's MVL or Mass Vehicle Ledger Foundation, Malaysia's Dexi, and Indonesia's Gojek looking to join the fray. Still, Mr. Tan is undeterred. The passenger driver matching platform is just a start. We will have other more attractive services on the app in the coming days, Mr. Tan said, but declined to review more. He is also promising attractive promotions for customers, but was tight-lipped about what they will be. Based on my research, as long as there are no more than five players, the market should be able to accommodate all of them. I expect my business to grow along the way, he added. The Agri-Food and Veterinary Authority, or AVA, is working with experts in the U.S. to track down the source of some 3,500 kilograms of illegal ivory, worth about 2.5 million U.S. dollars, seized here after it was shipped from Nigeria. The ivory was confiscated in March, on route to Vietnam. A spokesman for AVA said yesterday, As part of our investigations, AVA recently collaborated with Dr. Sam Wasser, his team from the University of Washington, and the U.S. Homeland Security Invest Investigations to conduct DNA analysis of samples from the latest seizure. Dr. Wasser, a conservation biologist from the University of Washington, pioneered the scientific method of extracting DNA from ivory tusks in 1998. <clears throat> Among other things, an analysis of DNA samples can pinpoint where the elephant was poached and review potential linkages with other seizures overseas, AVA said. As part of the two-day sampling process last month, the tusks were measured and grouped according to their characteristics. Once sorted, specific ivory pieces were identified for sampling. A small piece of ivory was cut from each sample and taken to Dr. Wasser's lab in the US for DNA tests, which are ongoing, said AVA. Dr. Anna Wong, director of AVA's import and export regulation department, said that while Singapore is neither the source nor destination country for illegal ivory, the trade is transnational in nature. Singapore has long been identified by international environmental groups monitoring the illegal wildlife trade as a transshipment hub through which exotic animals and their parts often come through. Dr. Wong said, the findings can assist law enforcement agencies in source countries to focus their enforcement efforts. We are confident that our efforts will con contribute to the global fight against illegal ivory trade.
Dr. Wasser said that for fast enforcement action, it is important that seized ivory get sampled quickly. He said, by getting the information quick, we can have a greater effect, effect in enforcement. If we are brought in earlier, we can help enforcement agencies build a better prosecution. His working relationship with the Singapore authorities goes back some 10 years. The Republic, he said, was the first country he worked with to conduct DNA analysis of seized ivory, and is by far the most responsive he has collaborated with. He said, the ivory we are sampling now was seized a month and a half ago. That's the shortest time we've ever had between when the seizure was made and us getting to sample it. In other cases, countries do not release seized ivory for sampling until up to two years later, he added. Singapore follows the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, or CITES. Elephants are a protected species under CITES, and international trade in elephant ivory is prohibited. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Homeland Security Investigations Regional Attache Calvin Webb said collaboration such as that between AVA and the University of Washington, coupled with the use of technology, can help with enforcement. He said, those involved in the deaths which led to this past March, March's historic poach ivory seizure, as well as others involved in this criminal act, will be held accountable for their actions. While the agency works with international agencies such as Interpol and steps up enforcement at checkpoints, the public has an important role to play as well, AVA said on Friday. This includes not buying illegal wildlife or their parts and products, as well as sending alerts to the authorities for suspected cases via AVA's online feedback form or by calling 6805-2992. Those found guilty can be fined up to $1,000 and must forfeit the animal or item. If the wildlife species is protected under sites, the fine is a maximum of $500,000 and or two years imprisonment. Specimens will also be forfeited. DBS Bank on Thursday alerted customers to a phishing website that resembles POSB's internet banking login page targeting POSB customers. According to DBS's alerts, the site is designed to steal customer details, login information, personal identification numbers, and one-time passwords in order to perform fraudulent transactions. Customers who receive phishing emails and click on the links will be redirected to a website that does not belong to POSB but looks like the real site. Samples of the malicious emails include those from the address customerservice at posbbank.com.sg, which does not belong to the bank. DBS, which owns POSB, advised customers to protect themselves from such scams by typing the URLs of the banking websites directly into their browser's address bars. They can verify that the webpage is the official one by looking for the padlock icon. DBS also warns customers not to reply to unsolicited email and to call DBS at 1-800-111-1111 for personal banking and 1-800-222-2200 for business banking if they notice unknown transactions appearing on their accounts. The Singapore Police Force shared DBS's notice yesterday asking netizens to help spread the word to prevent scams. The beaches and lagoons around Kusu Island are closed to the public after pieces of debris containing asbestos, sorry, asbestos were discovered, the Singapore Land Authority said in a statement yesterday evening. The potentially toxic material was however not detected as the island's other main public attractions like the Dabo Gong or Tua Pek Kong Temple, Wishing Well, Tortoise Sanctuary, Temporary Hawker Centre and Jetty. These areas will remain open to visitors. The regular scheduled daily ferry services to Kusu Island will also continue. SLA said that it will be conducting asbestos removal works on Kusu and expect them to be done by October. The discovery of asbestos on Kusu Island follows checks by the SLA and other agencies after asbestos was also found on St. John's Island on April 16. Affected areas on the island were also closed off, and the SLA expects them to be reopened only in mid-next year. Checks were also done on Lazarus Island, Pulau Seringat, and Kias Island, 
they have been declared safe. Checks are still being done for Pulau Hantu. Asbestos is a fibrous mineral that was once a popular component in construction materials. Due to its links in health problems such as lung cancer, its use in buildings was banned in Singapore in 1989, but many earlier structures still contained substance. Structures containing asbestos pose no risk to humans if they are intact. However, when there is damage or disturbance, such as sawing or, and cutting, fibers may be released into the air and inhaled. Asbestos-related diseases, such as asbestosis, occur mainly in, mainly in people with many years of continued exposure to high levels of asbestos, and this is commonly work-related. The risk of developing an asbestos-related disease for persons with incidental exposure, including visitors to affected islands, is low. A dentist came up with a bogus claim scam that saw more than $400,000 from his patient's MediSafe accounts paid to the clinic where he worked. Dentist Stephen Ang Kiam Hao would offer underprivileged patients lower rates than those charged at other clinics before making dishonest claims with their MediSafe accounts with their consent. But his company's managing director allegedly decided to open the scheme to others when he found out. Ang, 43, admitted in the district court that he had duped the Central Provenance Fund, or CPF Board, into disbursing $434,241 from 14 patients' MediSafe accounts to the small division surgeons at Orchard. He pleaded guilty yesterday to 30 cheating charges involving 5 patients and $65,858. Another 253 charges for similar offences involving the remaining amount will be taken into consideration during sentencing. Ang joined Smile in 2007 and came up with the scheme two years later. Deputy Public Prosecutor Tio Guan Xiu explains that documents need to be prepared before submitting each MediSafe claim. They include a letter of certification in which a medical practitioner certifies that a procedure was performed and the fees to be charged are payable. Ang would certify on them that state operations have been performed on multiple dates when in fact they were all done in a single day or two at most. As a result, the CPF board would be induced into disbursing multiple claim amounts to his Lucky Plaza clinic. When a new patient came to him, Ang would conduct a consultation, give a diagnosis and provide a rough estimate of how much the treatment would cost. During financial counselling, Ang staff would ask the patients to show their MediSafe account balance by logging on to the CPF board's website. If the patient was unable to pay cash, they would be offered a package in which the small division dental group would treat them at rates lower than those charged elsewhere. If the patient agreed to utilise their MediSafe savings, Ang would perform the treatment and arrange for it to be claimed in full or almost in full from MediSafe. DPPTO said that for dental implants, Ang would submit, on behalf of the patient, multiple MediSafe claims based on fictitious surgery dates on which no surgery was in fact carried out, so as to circumvent the withdrawal limits. The prosecutor also said that Ang's share of the net fees was 56%, while Smile was entitled to the rest. The dental group's managing director, Cecil Go Chin Chai, 48, found about the scheme. In 2011, and saw it as a means to attract more patients, the court heard. Go and Ang agreed that the scheme should continue at the Lucky Plaza Clinic and it would no longer be restricted to underprivileged patients. Go is also said to have decided to implement the scheme in other small clinics and encourage dentists to adopt it. The offences came to light after the Ministry of Health made a police report on July 14, 2014, following an audit. DPP Tio said that Ang paid more than $535,000 to the CPF board on December 21st last year, which included the initial amount, plus 4% interest per annum. This was later disbursed to the affected patients' MediSafe accounts. Cases involving Go, Smiles Practice Manager, Yo Miao Kun, 47, and another TSD dentist, Daniel Liu Yao Xiang, 36, are still pending. Ang is out on bail, of $250,000 and will be back in court on June 26. A 36-year-old foreign man was arrested on Thursday for suspected involvement in multiple cheating cases amounting to almost $100,000 worth of electronic and mobile devices. 
The police said the man used fake email addresses and work passes to carry out his ruse. He also forged work letters to obtain multiple products from a consumer electronics store and two telco companies. The police received a report on April 5th this year from a consumer electronics store. The store reported that it had received a note from an imitated email address impersonating a preschool staff member on March 20th. The sender requested to purchase Apple products and other electronic devices. The store, which the police did not name, then received two further purchase orders from March on March 26 and 28. They are believed to be from the same men. The store was told the products were required urgently as the school term had already started. It subsequently allowed collection of the products from different outlets in Singapore between March 27 and 29. It is believed the men engaged a delivery man to collect the items. Police also received two other reports between April 20th and 24th from telco companies. They said they received several online mobile applications using forged work passes and company letters. These were applications for mobile services and handsets. The applications were approved and the same man is believed to have then engaged couriers to collect the handsets. He was identified through extensive ground inquiries and with the use of security camera footage. Upon receiving information from Singapore Marriott's Tang Plaza Hotel that the men had checked in on the afternoon of May 3rd, officers conducted an operation there. He was arrested at 11.30pm in a hotel room and more than $70,000 in cash was seized, as well as four company stamps believed to be forged. Police also recovered one mobile phone, one MacBook, one Microsoft Surface Pro, one foldable knife, one thick knife, and substances believed to be controlled drugs. Investigations by the police are still ongoing, but the man is believed to be involved in at least three other similar cheating cases. The police advises retailers to be wary when dealing with online applications and to assess the le legitimacy of emails. The man will be charged in court on Saturday. If convicted, he faces an imprisonment term of 10 years or with fine or both. And that is your news flash for today. Thank you for listening.